Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called One New Humanity, Salvation is from the Jews. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 19, 2009. A few weeks ago, I attended a Jewish shiva at a friend's house in our neighborhood. In Hebrew, Shiva means seven, and in this instance, it refers to the week-long ritual of mourning for a loved one who has died. About 30 of us gathered in the backyard to honor Bobby's life. A young woman rabbi led us in a series of readings from a small booklet, about half of which we recited in English and half of which she chanted in Hebrew. Family members then shared fond memories of a life that was cut way too short, way too quickly. Halfway through the 30-minute service, I experienced a jolt when we recited together the psalm for this week, that most beloved of all passages in Scripture, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and restores my soul. If I had shut my eyes, I could have imagined myself to be worshiping in any church in the world. How remarkable, I thought, that this Jewish service should be so thoroughly Christian. Later, and especially as I reflected on Paul's remarks to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2 for this week, I had a brilliant glimpse of the obvious. And upon further reflection, I also realized how tragically typical my thinking was and how attitudes like mine across the last two millennia have done so much damage in Jewish-Christian relations. My friend's Shiva was not Christian. No, my Christianity was Jewish. As a Gentile, I had it backwards. Christians are not the we, and Jews them. It would be more theologically accurate for Jews to see themselves as us, and Gentiles like me, as them. That, in essence, is what Paul tells the Gentile followers of Jesus in Ephesus. And he goes even further, rejecting all such us-against-them rhetoric and we-they antagonisms in favor of one harmonious humanity. The Old Testament text for this week from 2 Samuel 7 makes a clever and important play on words. We read how King David, who enjoyed his own regal house, that is, his palace, wanted to build a house for Yahweh, that is, a temple. But that was not to be. Instead, Yahweh would build a house for David, that is, an eternal dynasty. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up for you your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. 
your throne will be established forever. Psalm 89 for this week repeats this Davidic promise. I will maintain my love to David forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, and his throne as long as the heavens endure. And so the first storytellers of Jesus go to great lengths to identify these Davidic promises with Jesus himself. He is the long-awaited son of David. And so all of the first followers of Jesus were, quite naturally, only Jewish. Most people in the decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus construed his followers as a sect of Judaism, which in fact it was. Even the so-called anti-Semitism in the Gospels, says Paula Fredrickson in her new book, Augustine and the Jews, is a misleading anachronism. Horrendous anti-Semitism did in fact come later. But initially, says Fredrickson, the denunciation of the Jews in the Gospels was what she calls fraternal name-calling within Judaism. The acrimony and denunciations, she says, were one of the most unmistakably Jewish things about the Jesus movement. But bit by bit and across the years, as already hinted at in the Gospels themselves, Gentiles began to follow Jesus. This raised an obvious question. How, if at all, could impure Gentiles fit into this Jewish story of salvation? In his remarks to the Gentile believers at Ephesus in the text for this week in Ephesians 2, Paul uses the most unflattering language to describe the Gentile dilemma. Just remember, he says, you uncircumcised Gentiles were separate from the Jewish Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. Gentiles, writes Paul, are far away in space and time to the Davidic promise of salvation that was fulfilled in Jesus. Paul uses a different metaphor to make a similar point when he writes to the Gentile believers in Rome. The Jews, he says, are natural branches. Gentiles, in contrast, are a wild olive shoot that has been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Romans 11:17. You Gentiles do not support the Jewish root, but the root supports you. Or as Jesus himself bluntly puts it to the Samaritan woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. John 4:22. Gentiles thus do well to remember their honorary guest status. It's no wonder that Paul describes the inclusion of Gentiles as a mystery. We read in Ephesians 3.6, This mystery is that through the Jewish gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Gentiles who were far away have been brought near 
in Jesus. The foreigners have been made fellow citizens. The aliens have been adopted as part of God's family. Paul summarizes the meaning and message of Jesus in a single word. He himself is our peace. Beyond the many antagonisms of religion, ethnicity, race, class, and gender, Jesus, says Paul, made the two one and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Such is the radically egalitarian standing of all humanity before a loving and impartial God. In this new humanity, Paul tells both the Colossians and the Galatians, there is no Greek or Jew, male or female, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Colossians 3.11, Galatians 3.28. Paula Fredrickson thus argues that Paul, who described himself as both a Hebrew of Hebrews and apostle to the Gentiles, never intended to replace Judaism outright with brand new Christianity. From first to last, she says, Paul remained thoroughly Jewish, he hoped to convert Gentiles into honorary Jews, not to convert Jews into Christians. The tragic irony of this, and the main point of Fredrickson's important book, is that the parting of the ways between Christianity and Judaism was by no means inevitable. And for further reflection, read Acts chapters 10 and 11 about Peter's conversion to acceptance of Gentiles. In Acts chapter 15, about the consternation of the Jewish followers of Jesus upon hearing that the Gentiles were converting. For books this week, I review Ellen Johnson's Sirleaf, This Child Will Be Great, New York, HarperCollins, 2009, 353 pages. I have been one of the lucky ones, writes Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Africa's first woman president, in the very last sentence of this remarkable memoir. In not only her native Liberia, but the entire world is all the better because of her. But as Sirleaf demonstrates in her autobiography, there was far more than luck to her improbable triumph over personal and political obstacles that included an abusive husband, imprisonment, house arrest, exile, and one of the longest and most violent descents into political anarchy on the continent. 
Like most of Africa, slavery and colonialism left a bitter and complex legacy in Liberia. The elite settler class of Americo-Liberians ruled the country from a position of power and privilege that they had no intention of relinquishing. Even though it bred a broad and deep hostility among 16 indigenous and dirt-poor ethno-linguistic groups. After the caretaker presidency of William Tubman, who died in 1971, William Tolbert took office and continued this kleptocracy of corruption, patronage, and nepotism. Then, in 1980, an illiterate thug named Samuel Doe staged a coup by murdering Tubman in bed, brutalizing his body, and publicly murdering 13 of his cabinet members. Sirleaf, in fact, was one of four ministers who was spared. Samuel Doe's ten long years ended when Prince Johnson, who's now a senator, by the way, tortured, mutilated, and murdered Doe, then distributed a videotape of the grisly deeds throughout the country. But it was Charles Taylor, not Prince Johnson, who followed Doe, winning an election on his slogan, You kill my ma, you kill my pa, I will vote for you. Taylor's psychopathic reign of terror lasted 14 long years and ended when he resigned in 2003. Today he's imprisoned and on trial in The Hague. When Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was inaugurated on January 16, 2006, she inherited a failed state that The Economist magazine identified as the single worst place in the world to live in 2003. Life expectancy at birth is 39 years. Literacy for women is 40 percent. Unemployment had swelled to 80 percent. Twenty-five years of civil wars slaughtered over 200,000 citizens and displaced another one million out of a population of three million. The economy and infrastructure, water, electricity, garbage collection, and so on, are in shambles. But in Ellen Johnson's Sirleaf, Liberia also has one of the hardest working, smartest, and most honest presidents in all of Africa. Thanks to her, the future of Liberia is brighter than it's ever been. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, this child will be great. New York, HarperCollins, 2009. For film this week, I review The Girlfriend Experience from 2009. The need to love and be loved, to know and to be known, says director Steven Soderbergh, is so deeply and powerfully embedded in human nature that we will do almost anything to get it. We will even pay for it, whether to a therapist, to a personal trainer like Chris, or to a $2,000 an hour escort girl like Chelsea. She provides sex, of course, but mainly therapy to very wealthy but deeply lonely men.
Mainly, these men talk to Chelsea about things that you'd talk about in a real relationship. She pretends to offer that, and they imagine that they receive it. And woe to both parties when they drop their guard and transgress business boundaries to reveal themselves to each other as real human beings, rather than as partners in a transaction. Since human love is one of the few things you cannot buy, Chelsea and her clients seek something they can't get, and they forfeit their closest approximations in what they already have. The Girlfriend Experience by director Steven Soderberg, 2009. For poetry this week, we go all the way back to the second and third century and the great church father Irenaeus. Irenaeus lived from about 125 to 210 AD. And in this poem, he speaks very positively about what he calls capable flesh. The tender flesh itself will be found one day, quite surprisingly, to be capable of receiving, and yes, full capable of embracing the searing energies of God. Go figure, fear not, for even at its beginning the humble clay received God's art, whereby one part became the eye, another the ear, and yet another this impetuous hand. Therefore, the flesh is not to be excluded from the wisdom and the power that now and ever animates all things. His life-giving agency is made perfect, we are told, in weakness, made perfect in the flesh. Irenaeus, capable flesh. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 19th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.